City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Okay, tar and cement and uh, city limits is on the air. And uh, this morning it's the second Wednesday of the month, therefore it's the uh, day we do sort of energy and related utility, etc., privatisation and related issues. And um, Meg Kimber's pressed the buttons, we're morning. on air and she's here and I'm Kevin Healy. And this morning on the show, well, in the first, in about quarter of an hour, we're going to talk for five minutes or so and just do a catch up on what's happening on the public housing uh, campaign um, with... Um, with Howard Morosi from that group. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so Howard's going to come on and oh, have a quick good. chat. Um, and you've got some stuff from him, I believe. Did you get an email from him? He tells me. But I anyway. did get an email from yes, him. Right. Yep. But he's going to outline three or four events that are happening. I went to the event last Thursday night at um, myself. How was that? About 150 turned up. It was quite a good crowd, That's I thought. That's good, yeah. And a motion was carried to, um, you know, the, it was a bit of motherhood motion, really, but it, you know, no one opposed it. What does that mean? <laughs> well, it, it's opposing the. Um, it's opposing the motion was opposing what's happening in public housing to the privatisation process. It called yeah. for a body, state to set up a, a body to control and run and, and develop public housing. Oh, great. And also, for a, though the more important one is for it to get a huge rally going before the state election on the issue. So. Good. We'll see what and happens. And the state election is? Uh, well, it's yeah. late November. November. It's the third, I think it's the third Saturday in November. It might be the last, but it's, it's set it by set by statute, so it has to be oh, every, every okay. four years. So, yeah, you're not a Victorian. Nope. In Victoria, um, every four years at that time, you have a state election, and every in the two-year cycle, you have the council elections. Oh, so all, okay. all, all now listed for that period. Right. Um, so I'll talk to Howard about that. And then the main interview this morning, though, is with Colin Long, who's currently, and I think he's about to not be, the State Secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union. Mm. But he's about to take up a newly created position at Trades Hall, looking at environment and climate change issues and work with unions and uh, and bodies like Earthworker on those sort of issues, which is a... That's such a good idea. Yeah, important role. So yep. we'll talk to Colin about that this mm. morning as well. So that's our program, Meg. That's it. It's um, going to be amazing. And what we haven't done so far, though, and how negligent, is pour the tea. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. I mean, it's like five minutes past nine, Kevin. Oh, there'll be listeners out there going through psychiatric. I don't suppose they... <laughs> I mean, today is Mental Health Day, actually. <coughs> International is Mental it? Health today? Day. Is it? Today? I know it's been Mental Health Week. Yeah, the There's Bricky, been lots of the, good programming on 3CR about well, the, that. The Bricky show did a, did, did a lot about it this morning as well. It concentrated on the issue because today is, is the day. Is the day. And I was thinking, I don't want to belittle people who have mental health issues, but oh I thought gosh. with the politicians we talk about, most of them you'd think should realise they have, particularly, say, a Donald Trump, <laughs> but they don't realise it. They've got genuine problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which affect everybody, which is a... Yeah. Not that the others aren't genuine, but they, uh, the others are, are serious and affect people. Um, and not that Donald Trump doesn't either, of course. Yeah. Get a grand <laughs> circles here, aren't we? Um, <laughs> Tell us something from the Herald. The Herald, so here we are, the first headline. No, just, just the headline, because why worry about it? But last, uh, last Friday, 
There it is, all the things happening in the world. There's 20 pages of Turnbull Stakes form inside. That's at the top with um, with a photo of a horse. Look, and a yeah. couple of women wearing the um, the Winx colours and um, they will lead cheering at Flemington tomorrow. Well, I hope everyone saw them among all the crowd out there. Um, but anyway, revealed Union Rat Pack all over the front page. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, yes. Un- nice big yes, letters. Yes, yes, yes. There you are. So... That's it. That's the right. big, that that's was the the big news. news. Yes, that's, that's all we it. need to know. No, that's all. That, I don't need more than that. Um, now, um, this is an interesting item, I thought, and it's actually in the Herald Sun of all places. It was in yesterday. Mm. But, um, and I suppose they're, um, they're, they're coming from two directions. You know, they're defending people having their prices go up, except when they put their own prices up, of course. Prices for what? Uh, for all the goods they've got to buy. Oh, everything. Because they, they care about people being able to afford, you know, they really care about the small person. Yes. We know that Rupert Murdoch's a great supporter of the small person. Yes. Um, Victorians face paying more for everyday goods from next year once new Port of Melbourne container charges are passed on to suppliers. And the story is that DP World... Um, down at uh, down at the port there has um, has increased its access fees from forty nine twenty to eighty five thirty per container. Going forty nine twenty to eighty five thirty. It's a pretty big rise. That's from, huge. From January one, yeah. the same charge at Swanson Dock in April twenty seventeen was just three fifty per container, but that was a year and something ago. So who cares? Wow. And it's played down concerns about flow-on costs. But you've got the usual industry people saying this is terrible. The industry people themselves put up their costs for everybody, but then when someone does it to them, they complain mm. this is going to affect the people we care about, like mm-hmm. our workers and everyone else. Our customers. But a DP World spokesman said the it would increase but only add 15 cents to the delivered cost of a flat-screen TV and 10 cents to that of a microwave. Um, oh, phew. To, now, this is a bit I like. To ensure a sustainable future in an increasingly competitive market, DP World Australia is continuing the journey to a rebalanced revenue recovery from waterside to landside. Now, um, if you can explain what that means, it help, would help a lot. But, <laughs> but uh, the bit about sustainable future, like we're talking about environment today, their sustainable future is the sustainability of their bottom line. They, That's what they're actually talking they about. They love chucking the word sustainable in there. They've got so many advisors that are just saying, oh, like, use, sus- right. use the word sustainable. Right. It's kick very in, hot right now. Kick in sustainable in your home. Um, the Farmers Federation said the charge was a major blow, um, to et cetera, et cetera. Um, Anyway, the bit I like, though, and this is why I've picked up the story particularly, um, a couple of years ago now, the Andrews government, and we all, you know, we, we posted on this program, we didn't get out in the streets about it, unfortunately, they actually privatised the Port of Melbourne. Uh-huh. So the government then ran it and, and controlled the charges. Um, it was leased, but it's, you know, it's leased for 99 years or something, mm-hmm. so it's effectively privatised. Mm-hmm. They... they Leased it for nine point seven billion, and said that then it would. They then said they would cap annual tariff increases to protect farmers, manufacturers, and consumers. So they they said they would mm. cap. Obviously, though, it wasn't in the contract because Ports Minister Donnellan said he was disappointed by the latest increase. Well, that's very good, but what's he going to do about it? Absolutely nothing because he can't. But he's disappointed, though. That's good. Yeah. While these charges are a matter for the stevedores and their individual customers, well, that's different to what they said about capping back in 2016. 
Are you, are you alive over there? Yes, only just. <laughs> right, I don't okay. know what's happened. Sorry. <laughs> oh, good. Try and hang in, try and hang in till <laughs> 10 o'clock at least. I turned my microphone off and had a cough, <laughs> yeah. but you probably still heard it. Try and hang in till 10 o'clock at least, will you? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Capitalism <laughs> makes me cough. <laughs> oh, well, that's okay. Keep coughing. Um, it is reasonable for industry to expect an improved level of service in return. Well, come on, come on. Mm. And the others, people, the other people are complaining about it as well. But it's just that, you know, privatisation, as usual, the result of privatisation is prices going through that yeah and we've definitely seen uh, you know services vastly improve the more that you pay oh well, my electricity is like oh, so well, much more could, electric we could raise that with common later but uh, yeah. yes i mean we the um the genesis of the problems with electricity pricing go back to the privatization process yeah. as we know it's crazy how expensive yeah. it is but here's great news for workers in america or those who work for amazon Amazon, yeah, Amazon, I've heard about yeah, this. Yes, Amazon yeah. has um, lifted its, its its lifted its minimum wage um, for more than two hundred fifty thousand workers to a whole. Wait for it, fifteen dollars an hour. Oh my gosh! Oh wow! And this is in a country where the minimum wage is still still set at seven twenty five an hour. Yeah, uh, which it has been for the last. Um, Ten years or nine years, oh nine, it went to that, and it, they, they don't have a process. It varies it, from it. state to state because each state yeah. ha- has its own sort yeah. of rules about it. But I think yeah, the federal minimum wage is says it seven, and it's pretty yeah. low. Seven twenty five. Certain states, yeah. like nice states like Oregon, might set it at thirteen dollars an hour. Give people a real living wage there. Well, Walmart a couple of years ago Mm. at Christmas had bins out the front for people to donate so their workers could have a good Christmas. Oh, my gosh. Which saved them actually having to pay them a living wage. Yeah. Well, we've Uh, said before about how Amazon, um, a a large amount of their staff have to use government-subsidised services or food stamps Mm. to survive. Well, Amazon yeah. workers here have been complaining about the conditions as well that they work under. Yeah, they? and in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, they're going to get more for it in America anyway, $15. Isn't that wonderful? I'm sure. Um, I mean, it's probably doubling their wages, but it still is not enough. No, that's right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, it, it probably is a huge... It's, yeah, I don't know yeah. what it was before, but... Does it say what it was before? No, I don't think it does, actually. Um, <clears throat> but... Um, they uh, the, the, they've been criticised because they're making record profits, but the workers have been stuck on you know, yeah the same wage stuff or wages yeah. Um, but um, and Donald Trump's chief economic adviser Larry Kudlow said good for them and rejected any notion that rising wages are inflationary. So they're not going to that fifteen dollars isn't going to endanger the American economy oh, apparently. For you, which is great news. <coughs> I, I when I read that, I, that's my first worry. I thought, will this yeah. affect, will this destroy the American economy? That's as we what know I it? thought too. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it won't. It's what good. happens to trickle down if the people on the bottom already have enough? Well, it's not going to happen. Don't worry about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, good, because I think it would ruin yeah. the whole trickle down. Let's talk reality on this yeah. program. <laughs> Hang in there. Anyway, um, also there's been a there was a full page ad signed by a heap of people and a heap of organisations. Um, supporting public schools following this latest handout to Catholic schools by the federal government, but mm. nothing extra for, for government schools. Um, and um, and even the private, the non-Catholic private school sector is complaining that it's missed out as well, so they're all carrying on a bit. Mm. Uh, but it's just back to... I would have thought the, the best solution would be to go back to where we were 
many years ago, and I was heavily involved in the fights about it, um, to give no aid at all to non-government schools, just fund government schools, fund yeah. government tertiary institutions. That was one of John Howard's yeah. government's great ideas, as I remember, that, that they were like, oh, we'll fund private schools and then it will, they'll all put down their prices and then more people will be able to go to private schools. That's right. That's and right, I think yeah. that's what happened. Well, they... It goes. The debate goes way back to the '60s, and I was heavily involved in it. Yeah, it was right. around about then they started funding government schools. In, oh, really? Inside the ALP, there was um, there were great disputes. It was called state aid at that time. Oh. And um, you, know, I've often quoted that B. A. Santa Maria, the great anti-communist um, Catholic, uh, could could sit there and in the same sentence, and without batting an eyebrow, he could he could say, "Communists brainwash dear little children." And we demand state aid for Catholic schools, and he wouldn't even blush. Um, but it was a, a great, and, it, and I think there's a, there's a simple situation. I think the government, providing it's adequate, the government government provides a system where kids can be educated, and if people want to run their own, good luck to them. I don't don't deny them that. But if yeah. they want to, they have to pay for it themselves. I don't see why they should get a cent of government money. Yeah. But there you are. Yeah. And that's from someone who spent nine years at a Catholic college here in Melbourne. But, uh, and that's what drove me to it because we were, we were lectured in, in my matriculation year, as it was then called. Um, yeah. We were lectured in, um, in, by a, a member of Santa Maria's staff who really? came in and pulled down maps with China and red arrows and all that sort of stuff. Oh, so, my gosh. You know, so it was a propaganda brainwashing machine. Yeah. <laughs> and I became very much, <laughs> 10 years later, in the OLP state executive, I was the lead campaigner fighting against state aid. So yeah, right. There you are for that reason. But it went through. Yes, yeah. it, it, and, and we were undermined by state leaders and you know, Whitlam and mm. companies. So yeah, yeah, of course. Mm. Um. Now, this is an important one. Mark Benioff. Now, this bloke's um, worth uh, trillions of dollars. He runs a mob called Salesforce, um, and he's also um, recently taken over Time magazine, and his net worth is believed to be more than $6 billion. $6 billion. And he says we have to have a future of inclusive capitalism, and the answer to society's problems is business. Business must drive social change. Now, that's that's pretty that's that's pretty <laughs> promising for the world, isn't it? <laughs> My God, yeah. that is that is promising. My yeah. goodness me, yes. Um, so he says that every company and every CEO had better be ready to answer to their values. He said, "We ask every company, what is your highest value?" Well, we know what that is: capital, <laughs> greed, mm. greed, capital. That's right, mm. profit. We don't know how you make it; doesn't matter. Mm. So there you are. That's. Um, that's that. Look, let's take a break. We'll get Howard on the line and we'll catch up with some public housing stuff. All righty. Well, actually, um, Gab just handed me some information before that I think that you would find interesting, mm. Kevin. It's about Melbourne's grassy plains. Yes. And there, have you heard about this? No, I haven't, I don't think. Um, there is a, uh event happening. It's a conference um, for community and professionals. Mm. People who share an interest in the conservation of Melbourne's grassy plains, and it's happening on this Friday and Saturday. It's nine to five on Friday, and it's one to five on Saturday. But if you get there at twelve, you get lunch, mm-hmm. and it's at Wyndham City uh, Wyndham Council Chambers, forty-five Princess Highway, Werribee. 
So it has an amazing program of, of events that are happening. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's important. I didn't know that was on, but it's really important because yeah. those grasslands are rare. I mean, they, you yep. go out to the west and it looks pretty flat and pretty dry and all that sort of stuff, but there are some, you know, they're rare ecology and rare environment. Yes. And um, all the all the development that's taking place and much of Melbourne's is taking place on that grassland across those western plains and uh, it is destroying the last remnants of many ecological and uh, mm. you know, and flora, flora and fauna. So and a really, really important conference and it's, it's, I don't know how you stop those sort of developers yeah. with the sort of governments we've got but governments should simply say, you know, that, that land that must be preserved. That is important because it doesn't look impressive to people but... no. It is important to the yes. ecosystem. Yeah, a friend of mine's heavily involved in that, um, in, yeah. in, in those grasslands and uh, and the flora and fauna out there. And mm. she's, I, I, haven't, she hasn't, I haven't been out with her, but she's taken other friends who say, once you go out with her and she explains it to you, you realise how you important it, it is. You see it differently. Yeah. We should get her yeah. on. One, one yeah, we've had her on years oh, ago, but right. we haven't. We could get her back on. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll take a little break. Okay. Okay, that fades away, and um, hopefully not fading away is Howard Morosi, because he's got to talk to us. Um, Howard, um, you're going to catch up. Oh, hey, I mentioned briefly the meeting last Thursday. Uh, your impression of that? Excellent, excellent meeting. Uh, very well attended. Um, very good uh, spirit. Uh, unanimous. There are actually a couple of ALP uh, local councillors there from Moreland as well. Not sure that they actually voted for the resolution, but they didn't vote against it. No. Um, and uh, there's a lot of people that are actually willing to, to uh, get active about it. Uh, as well as that, it's an alternative medium to uh, the mainstream media. So council will put up a big banner at Brunswick Town Hall, um, printed out uh, thousands of leaflets that they distributed to um, local residents about the issue. So we're getting the message out there via councils, even if you know the mainstream media is not touching it. Yeah, well, I don't feel so bad paying my rates now. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, no, the the idea of a um, a large public meeting, large public rally, um, thoughts on that? Yeah, we're, we're planning to have a, a big public rally at the State Library on the 9th of November. And again, it's another very important uh, way of sending out the message to the public because, um, as I keep saying, um, the mainstream media is hiding the issue from the eyes of the public and um, a rally is a great way of doing that. We'll, we'll be down there at the State Library with our banners, with our megaphones um, and hopefully we'll um, you know, get the message out to all the people walking past and going past in the trams. Yep, I've made an assumption, of course, that everyone knows of how Morosi is, but in fact he's from Friends of Public Housing and he comes on fairly regularly talking about these issues for those who haven't caught him before. Um, you mentioned to me that you wanted to talk about three or four events coming up. Um, what are they? Yeah, well, the first one is happening today at midday at Preston. Um, federal ALP, uh, Shadow Minister Doug Cameron, who I've had a, a very friendly interaction with earlier this year, um, is talking about their policy on housing and homelessness and women. Um, that's at uh, Darabin uh, North West Uniting Church, 399A Murray Road, Preston. Uh, that's near Preston Station. There's also a bus that goes down Murray Road, the 527 bus. Um, I'll just say um, I've had a look through the ALP draft policy on uh, housing and they actually specifically make an outrageous comment well, given the ALP, you probably wouldn't think it's outrageous. It's pretty much par for the course. Um, but their logic, just listen to the logic. Um, 
Labor recognises that community housing is the only social housing sector that is growing, even though this is at the expense of public housing density. The most important intervention the Commonwealth Government can make in the provision of social housing is to support the growth in the not-for-profit community housing sector. Oh, the logic. The logic. In other words, we'll, we'll uh, take away public housing, give it to the community housing, and then we'll say that's the only thing that's growing and therefore we've got to keep fostering it. Well, it's, I think the assumption would be also that that's the only thing they're going to finance, but no one finance public housing. That's what they're saying. Unless that's, it's that's, some... If you look through the draft policy, that's what they're saying. Now, <clears throat> that policy's not yet finalised and it's going to be sent out to uh, the ALP delegates in December, uh, sorry, November. So we've gotten the opportunity to uh, influence those uh, delegates to change that. So that's for their federal conferences in December now, of course, so, yeah. Yeah, so we've got the chance to affect that um, that uh, policy, with a dreadful policy. So uh, if people can come along today, their spokesperson, Doug Cameron, will be there. Also, the uh, local member of House of Reps, Jed Carney, will be there. She's uh, quite new to the job. She's still claiming to people that she's going to represent uh, their wishes, so maybe she's going to listen. Mm. Anyway, that's today at noon. I think, I think Doug Cameron's a good example of a unionist going into Parliament and then being able to achieve absolutely nothing. Yeah, or well, basically taking on Which the, is probably where Jed Carney's going to end up. Uh, you would think so. I mean, there's a whole conga line of people that have done that in the past, so it just seems to be the... You know, there's a message out to people who get into, uh, into um, union politics and that's a stepping stone for getting into the Labor Party, which is then a stepping stone of getting into the business sector. Unless you get an out-of-control radical like Bill Shorten, of course. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's, he's made a few uh, moves to the left. Um, so we should what, on a dance floor or something? Or? <laughs> well, you know, he's talking about various reforms on uh, in wages and stuff like that. Um, uh, so I wouldn't completely give up on him. Mm. He's a bit more promising than the other, the, the previous, his predecessors. Um, and as today, yep. um, Friday at 5pm in Ascot Vale, there's a protest against the depart- department's fiesta. The department's having a fiesta there to uh, impress people about their plans to demolish the estate. Um, so that's 5 o'clock Friday at corner of Union Road and Dunlop Avenue, Ascot Vale. And that's uh, put on by the Save Ascot Vale Estate Group. Right, good. Saturday 13th. 11 o'clock in the morning till noon. Public Housing Defence Network has got a stall at Brunswick Town Hall, corner of Sydney Road and, Br- and Dawson Streets in Brunswick. Yep. And then uh, the next big uh, public meeting is happening next Tuesday, the 16th of October, uh, 6 o'clock till 8 o'clock at um, Northcote Town Hall Arts Centre, 189 High Street, Northcote. Yep, and that's that's a follow-up. That's a similar to the one last week in Brunswick, isn't it? Yep. So, yep. yep. Yeah, that was mentioned at that meeting, I think, last week, wasn't it? Yep. Um, OK, well, look, we're going to have to cut you off there because we've got to move on to Colin Long. But, um, Howard, thanks for keeping us up to the morning. Obviously, talk to you again shortly about all sure, this. Sure, will do. OK, thanks okay. a lot. OK. Howard Morosi there and um, events that people can get involved in. And we've got to make sure people do get to that November 9th rally that... Uh, because mm. I think a, a, a huge rally to let people know what people feel is uh, is mm. critically important at this stage. Okay, yeah. let's go move on to Colin Long and we'll come back and talk about climate change and trades hall. World Mental Health Day 2018 is coming up on October 10th. 
This year, the World Health Organization's theme is Young People and Mental Health in a Changing World. Talking about what it means to grow up in today's society and how to build mental resilience to cope with pressures. To celebrate on Brainwaves, we want to hear from you. Send in your stories about what resilience and mental health means to you. Head to brainwaves.org.au to find out more and submit your story. Tune into 3CR Community Radio on Wednesday the 10th of October at 5pm to hear our special Mental Health Week edition of Brainwaves. Or listen to the podcast on the 3CR website. Brainwaves, hear the world differently. Proudly sponsored by Worldways Australia. On the line, Colin Long, and Colin is taking up a position shortly. I think I don't think he's quite there yet, but a new position at Trades Hall. Why should I talk about it? Uh, Colin Long is is has, up till now has been the state secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union, but he is moving to this new job at Trades Hall. What's it all about, Colin? Oh, great, Kevin. Um, oh, it's a it's a role that the hall is establishing to uh, deal with climate change, just transitions and uh, cooperatives, so to provide organising support for unions that want to engage in uh, and to lead the, the Victorian union movement on those issues. Hmm. Cooperatives right. as well. We are, um, Kevin hadn't mentioned that before. Yes, well, there's some great work being done by cooperatives in Victoria, Earthworker in mm-hmm. particular, All and right. then co- uh, Cooperative Power Australia, and... Um, the role is intended to provide you know, links between the union movement and those cooperatives and to help develop the cooperative economy in Victoria because it really provides some great opportunities to deal with uh, both issues of economic democracy and also climate change. Mm. What's the link that, you, that, that you've identified there that, you, that you're going to be working with? In relation to the cooperatives? Cooperatives and climate change. Well... Uh, Earthworker, for instance, is specifically established to provide uh, jobs for uh, workers that are being displaced from the coal-fired power industry and to develop renewable energy industries. So Earthworker has a factory in Morwell now manufacturing uh, hot water tanks for solar hot water systems. Uh, It's small scale at this stage, but the plan, of course, is to grow that and to um, get solar hot water systems on as many houses as possible and to expand and to give job job opportunities to people in com- in communities that are um, facing real challenges thanks to the need to decarbonise the economy. Mm-hmm. And of course they're also with people like pensioners etc they're actually giving them the um, the product. Uh, we, Earthwork has done some really interesting yeah. work. It's helped um, for instance the Father Bob Foundation to put a couple, some solar hot water systems on um, houses that uh, his foundation supports, um, yeah, to put them on for free, basically, to provide um, uh, renewable energy and solar hot water to low-income people, pensioners and so on. Mm. If worker wants to expand that, it is very keen to work with the government, state government, to put solar hot water systems into public housing and so on. But, uh, I mean, it wants to get solar hot water systems everywhere, but it's very keen on... Um, it also, this is the thing about cooperatives, there's a, a real understanding that they exist within a broader economy and a broader social system, and uh, Earth is very keen to 
uh, exercise its social responsibility in a broader sense and and its its democratic role in in local economies. And indeed, if they take off and get off the you know a number of them get off the ground, they do become a challenge to capitalism itself. Well, that's right. Hopefully, <laughs> I mean, we're a fair way off that. But uh, yeah. fair way, but, yeah. But you know, there's a number of unions, yeah. including um, the NTEU, but li- driven very much by the National Union of Workers, the NUW, and some other unions that have uh, established in conjunction with some environmental and community organisations. A cooperative called, called Cooperative Power Australia, uh, and it, its role it is established as now as a as an electricity retailer, uh, and the goal is to um, provide affordable and renewable energy to members of the the cooperative's owners, so unions and environment organisations. If you're a member of those organisations, you can get the benefit of, of getting power from this cooperatively owned uh, energy retailer. We've started um, selling power uh, in Queensland to NUW members and we're just waiting to start um, operations in Victoria and elsewhere, hopefully before too long. Well, that's a great initiative. I mean, mm. it, uh, and of course, people, I'm sure people are aware, but in these cooperatives, the workers actually own the company themselves they're working for. That's right. So the factory down in uh, Morwell, owned by Earthworker, is owned by the and operated by the, the workers in the factory. Earthworker itself is a much larger cooperative, which whose role really is to support and develop other cooperatives. So on top of uh, the factory in in Morwell, there's also uh, an, a cleaning cooperative called Red Gum Cleaning Cooperative that comes under the the Earthworker banner, and that's owned and run by its uh, workers. Hmm. They all sound like such good initiatives. Do you see um, cooperatives being an alternative moving forward to the union movement when the union movement is so much under attack politically? I don't see them as an alternative to the to the movement. I think the movement has and cooperatives have very different. Mm-hmm. roles, but they can complement each other. I mean, fundamentally, unions are about giving workers control over their working lives and giving them a voice at work. And workers' cooperatives take that to the even further. Mm. So they they give workers not just a voice in their workplaces, but they give control over their, their workplaces. Our co-op, earth worker cooperatives are all... Um, Union members or the member workers in those cooperatives are union members, mm. always wanting to work with uh, unions. I mean, obviously, if one challenge for unions is that uh, worker cooperatives do away with the division between boss and worker, yeah. which, is, which is a bit of a <laughs> challenge, a very welcome challenge for for unions. But we're a long way off being. Um, an economy where the boss-worker mm. distinction has been eradicated. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, well, it would be lovely to get there at some stage, but there's mm. still a very strong opportunity for collaboration between mm. co- workers' cooperatives and unions. Um, and as Cooperative Power Australia shows, that will also allow um, the generation of some uh, resources to to put back into 
the member organisations that own the cooperative, like unions, mm. to help them develop their organising and campaigning capacities. Yeah, and indeed, the other side of that, of course, at the moment, is that the capitalists themselves and their, their supporters in the media, etc., whenever anyone raises the idea that there is some difference between workers and bosses, says you're bringing class warfare into the equation now. It's a great phrase. It's funny, isn't it? Um, when, whenever you're advocating for something uh, for workers or a left perspective, it's class warfare. <laughs> but when, uh, when you're undermining or, or introducing laws that strengthen the hands of bosses to screw workers and to make jobs more insecure and cut wages... That's just what, what that would be. What economic efficiency that's or right. sensible mm. policy, and not something. real class warfare, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, the, the, this week, we've seen the International Panel on Climate Change uh, come out with its report, um, and it, it it managed to um, it managed to get Terry McCran very upset in the Herald Sun yesterday. I don't know if you saw it or not, but he he's. But he, he did put up at least an argument that was full of logic and reason. He says, um, he claims it's blackmail. Blackmail deployed by the IPCC climate hysterics, and the language here is really um, objective, of the grubby coalition of theological climate extremists and greedy money-chasing renewable energy rent-seekers, carpetbaggers and main chances all. Um, and it goes on in that um, it goes on in that vein um, with the most amazing comments about people who don't who actually do believe climate change might be happening. Um, I mean, clearly this report needs to be taken a bit more seriously than Terry McCran's taken it. I think. I didn't see Terry McCran. I have a look. It's it's great. You'll enjoy it. Uh, it sounds like I will. I, I did go through the Herald Sun on Monday and Tuesday trying to see if they had noticed the IPCC. They didn't. I, I made the all. point on my satire piece. I made the point. The only re, the only reference to it was Terry's column. Wow. Right. Yes, it was incredible. It claimed to be a newspaper. I mean, that absolutely uh, finally confirms to everyone that it's not a newspaper. It's the well, I don't know the Pravda of the right wing of the Liberal Party. <laughs> effectively. Um, uh, I, I will look. At McCran's thing, but I mean, it's pretty funny, isn't it, to, for supporters of the fossil fuel industry right. to be accusing other people of being rent seekers. Yeah. Um, there you go. Look, uh, the IPCC report uh, is finally really starting. I mean, there's a regular reports that the IPCC um, produces. There are very difficult reports to produce. Now, if we can be very serious about this, because they are reports that all especially on the summary report. The, all governments have a say in what the summary report says, so it's very difficult to get much controversial stuff put in those reports. And the fact that this report lays it very clear, the risks that we now face, um, shows that the risks are very, very real. There's been quite a bit of criticism, growing criticism of the IPCC from scientists and uh, climate change activists around the world that the IPCC has been underplaying the risks precisely because it has to run a, has to formulate consensus reports uh, that are overseen by the world's governments. But the fact that it has come out so strongly warning about the risks and how we have such a very long, a short period of time mm. to deal with them, I think that's incredibly important. And uh, the fact that 
people like Scott Morrison and the Australian government are just entirely dismissive of it. Means to shows to me that this that Morrison and the Liberals are entirely incapable of governing a country in the interest of its people, and mm. they have no legitimacy anymore. That means if there is one thing that governments are supposed to do is to look after the long-term interests of their people. If, they, mm. if they're not interested in that, then they shouldn't. They have no right to rule. And I think we're at that stage where um, the coalition must be seen as an illegitimate government with no right to rule the country. Well said. Is the government... That's the government. And, in fact, Morrison said it was global report, nothing to do with Australia. It did mention the Barrier Reef, by the way, and I thought... That had a bit to do with Australia. But, um, I, did, I did but, think Australia was part of the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, no, I, last I <laughs> no, I, I realised we weren't for a long time. But, um, but the opposition is it, it? Its policy isn't that much better, is it? Really? I mean, oh, it's better. It, it's um, talking about the neg, but the neg itself was a real compromise, wasn't it? Oh, the neg. I mean, why would you go back to the neg now? Mm. I mean, it's been it's been destroyed. It, it, doesn't serve any purpose. I'm not sure why you would go back to it. I mean, the Labor Party has some good proposals around uh, renewable energy investment. The Victorian government's doing pretty good stuff around renewable investment, although um, its, it's uh, obsession with market mechanisms is problematic because we've seen around the world that market mechanisms are not achieving the scale and speed of conversion to renewable energy that the crisis demands we achieve. Um, so, but I think it's quite clear the Labor Party would establish at least a discourse and a uh, the basis of a policy of a climate policy that is much better than the Liberals and probably would allow us to move um, move in the right direction. But it is true that neither major party has any. Mm has policies that are adequate for the scientific uh, consensus that climate change is an existential threat that must be dealt with in the next 10 to 15 years or we're um, facing really serious climate catastrophe. Mm. What's the... And, and to be honest, sorry, sorry mm. to interrupt, mm. but, you know, the fact that the Labor Party in nationally is still equivocal on Adani, the Adani mine, and has not come out explicitly saying it will revoke permits or anything mm. like that, and that the Queensland Labor Party continues to support the Adani mine is just an outrage. Yeah. Um, considering all of that on the on the level of government, and I know you've only just started or are just about to start, but what is the focus of that Trades Hall has about making positive changes regarding climate change and, and with unions? Yeah. The nature of the the hall, I think. Look, I think there'll be a couple of focuses. One will be to work closely with um, in, environment organisations that are, share the labour movement's commitment to a just transition for workers in coal-fired mm-hmm. industry, power industry. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of uh, environmental groups that have terrific understanding of the needs to. Think about the the rights and um, needs of workers like Friends of the Earth, mm. um, Environment Victoria, and other organisations. ACF they do have a real understanding of just transition and the need to 
to look after workers, but mm. that the transition can't all be on on the backs of those workers. Yeah. So we'll be building the links with those organisations and jointly working on campaigns. But I think also it is about helping unions to educate and talk to their own members about the issues around climate change. It'll be about grassroots campaigning and organising to ensure that workers understand the, the threat of climate change. It will be around basic things like um, occupational health and safety matters to do with heat stress um, mm. as on hot days, which are, are get burned, become more frequent, especially for industries where workers are outdoors, like in the in the construction industry and so on. Mm. Um, it'll be about training and educating delegates around climate change and just transition, just transition issues, and ensuring that in just in as our economy transitions now. Ideally, you would want to see a, an orderly, sensible transition, but I suspect it's going to be in crisis mode. Most mm. of the transition yeah. is going to occur, unfortunately, but mm. we've got to ensure that the needs and um, the rights of workers are respected in that because we've seen over and over again, every time an industry is restructured in this country, whether it's the car industry or the, when the electricity in, industry was privatised in Victoria, when... the the voices and rights of workers are not properly represented or not taken into account and unions are sidelined, it's the workers who get screwed. Mm. So we can't let that happen anymore. So that's one of the other things. And I think also lobbying governments to make sure that climate policy is adequate to the task that the scientists uh, are identifying is, is the other thing. And part of that, and your job at the, at the NTU relates to this, the industry is is continually arguing that, that uh, tertiary education institutions ought to be geared toward the, the needs of industry and they must train people to go to work rather than be educated. Um, and we, we saw if, if three or four years ago you would have said most workers needed to be trained to go out in the mining industry in Western Australia, for instance, but that changes regularly. So... Um, that's those sort of things that must come into it as well, that workers are being forced to adjust to industry all the time rather than the reverse. Well, that's right. I mean, well, there's all sorts of issues about the future of work. I mean, what sort of jobs will there be in 10, 15, 20 mm-hmm. years' time? Who knows? And the the impact of automation and artificial intelligence all, all, and all that sort of thing, it's difficult to, difficult to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we should be training or not training, we should be educating um, in universities at least uh, large numbers of students to uh, to be able to think and adapt and um, challenge lots of the ideas in the world. Mm. Not all university is about that, of course. I mean, large aspects of the most prestigious parts of universities are just vocational training. It's like med- medicine mm. and law. Mm-hmm. They are just vocational training institutions in that sense. And there's nothing wrong with vocational education. We need, in our tapes, need to be training people to um, be working on the design, development and installation of renewable energy. Well, so do our universities. So they're all vitally important. But But we do need, above all, at the moment, people who are capable of thinking about how our world could be a different place. Because one of the things, it seems to me, is that... um, 
we're just not we're sleep not even sleep walking we're sleep running into Armageddon, yeah. uh, climbing Armageddon, when we just seem incapable of thinking of a, an alternative way to to exist in the world. And I, that's a real indictment on our education system in many ways. The Financial Review is holding a National Energy Summit today, in fact, today and tomorrow, yeah. um, which has all the usual suspects speaking there, so they'll make great advances. But um, <clears throat> Ross Garno, at least, he, he, 10 years ago last week, he, he presented his review to the government, but he, point, he points out in a speech he's making today that since then he was wrong in the terms of the fact that the real costs of renewables have come down so much the effect of coal's gone up so much, etc., that now renewable's the only way to go. So at least he's saying that. Yeah, look, I mean, things have changed very rapidly in the last 10 years. The cost of renewables, as you say, has declined. You know, the take-up of rooftop solar in Australia has been phenomenal, but mm. the people themselves are very keen to get on and deal with climate change. Uh, it's, it's the government, really, especially the federal government, that's holding the country back in a way that is, you know, I, I call it treasonous. It really effectively is treason when you're not thinking about the interests of the people. You're actively working against the interests of the nation. It's treasonous. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the problem is how do you mobilise uh, renewables on a scale and at a speed to ensure that we properly deal with uh climate change, and I, and I might say as well, remember that it's only about 32% of the, the nation's uh, uh, emissions are from the energy generation sector. Mm. So, mm. I mean, we can introduce renewables in the energy generation sector pretty quickly, but, uh, and, you know, the pathways and all the, the technology is there now to be able to go to 100% renewables very quickly, really, and despite what some people say. But we'd still be left with the, the problem that we're expanding freeway construction. Yeah. Um, we haven't done enough on um, housing construction and the way houses are run for energy consumption, all that sort of stuff. And if, and if we are going to decarbonise the motor vehicle fleet, that's going to require a huge increase in the amount of electricity generation capacity at the same time as we're trying to decarbonise the electricity generation capacity. So that makes that task incredibly difficult. But whilst governments of all stripes, and, you know, the Victorian government is persisting with insane freeway-building projects, um, you know, that just makes everything harder. At the bidding of the private toll company, of course, too. Well, that's right. Well, you know, the Westgate mm. Tunnel project is, you know, it's an obscenity the way it's funnelling uh, people's money into the hands of that private toll operator. Mm. Even if you thought the, the idea of that road was a good idea, the way they are funding it is an outrage and it, it, will, cost, it will cost Victorians three or four times what it should have cost if the government had uh, funded it itself. Mm. Yes, and, and, and the question of whether it's necessary anyway in terms of what's needed yeah. in the part of the world. I mean, and the, and the well, you're right. I mean, the the extension of the the toll the toll on on City Link for Transurban is worth billions to them. That's right. And effective look, effectively, every dollar spent on freeways is a dollar that we won't be spending on public transport. 
if you spent those billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars on the freeway upgrades on public transport, you wouldn't need the freeway upgrades for a start. And um, we'd be able to decarbonise our electricity supply much quicker because we wouldn't be able, we wouldn't have to generate a whole lot of electricity eventually to power electric vehicles. Mm. Noting that at the moment, if you have an fully electric vehicle in Victoria, you're basically driving a coal-fired power (laughs) car at the moment, unfortunately. Mm. Um, So, and that's either support of electric vehicles, but you need to increase the generation capacity if, they, if you're going to run them effect, effectively and how they should, you know, if they're going to minimise their damage on the environment. So uh, I think it's, you know, it's a great... There has been... The state government is doing some good work on uh, public transport and the metro project, but... Mm. And it's other... Circular rail line is maybe a good idea, but why it would need to be take so long to construct is beyond me. I think, what are they saying, 2050 or 2050, something? yeah. I think a freeway would be, be a lot quicker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what will, be, what's, what will trains look like in 2050? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah look, we might be flying around the city by then. <laughs> <laughs> electric yeah, we've had, a, we've had a few flyers in, in some of our groups who uh, <laughs> go off about those things. Um, the, 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 you bring us that, that last comment of yours brought me to the fact, Jack, Bundy, going back to the um, perhaps the best time when unions and environment got together, um, mm. the green bands, etc., and Jack Mundy, and for young people, I'm sure they all know, but he was the secretary of the Builders Labor's Federation in Sydney. Um, one of his one of his um, quotes at that period was, "Workers must do socially useful work and determine what they do themselves." And mm. would part of your job be about that? Of you know, where where builders are constructing things we consider to be wrong, etc., that maybe you could look at all that. I would love to the union movement to think about that more broadly. I, I think the lessons of the Green Bands and the BLF and Jack Mundy need to be revisited. Jack Mundy was a great man, what the BLF did in Sydney, but also in Victoria too, mm, around yes. the preservation of historic sites, yep. not just historic sites, the, um, the bans on work for all sorts of uh, reasons, social justice, housing justice, feminism, um, race, racial politics, all of that stuff is incredibly important. And we need to get back to thinking about that much more. Mm-hmm. One of the problems, I think, in in recent years, although it has a long pedigree in Australia, is that, but in particular at the moment, unions talk about jobs. Now, we need to do that because we're about working people, working people. Mm. But when you talk about jobs in an indiscriminate way, any job is a good job, uh, then it means you you end up falling in behind, well, we should have coal mines or we should build freeways because they pr- provide jobs. Mm. Uh, and I think that's highly problematic. And we then we get projects that have a massive impact on the nature of our city, so either on housing affordability or transport or whatever, that it decided because they are so-called shovel-ready rather than whether we actually need them or whether they're strategically mm. valuable for the city in the long term. Yeah. And I, I think we just do interrupt here. I've got a... I've got a project, I know a bit about this on this program every week, but I've got a project opposite my place at the moment in Brunswick 
on railway land, which is going to end up being very expensive private apartments. And that's an example where I think the union should have taken a stand and said, let's have some public housing there. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff happening around public housing at the moment, the sale of, sale of yeah. uh, public housing estates and so on. The, the ridiculous thing is that there, are, there will be far more jobs in and good jobs and unionised jobs in a mass-scale expansion of social housing, whether it's public housing or cooperative housing or whatever, uh, and that would that would help to bring down. Well, obviously, you could deal with homelessness. You could bring down the cost of renting and the cost of housing in general. We have a crisis in housing affordability in this country. If we had a mass scale um, building program of social and public housing, that would be con- they would be mm. constructed by unionised labour. Most house building in Australia is not constructed by union labour. It's constructed by small scale contractors. Mm. Um, and uh, also in the, the uh, public transport, the construction of public transport, lots of jobs, and then there are ongoing jobs in public transport because someone's got to mm. operate the system, the train or tram system or whatever it is, whereas mm. in freeways you build them and that's about it. Maybe a bit of maintenance afterwards, but not much. Mm. So um, in those sort of socially useful construction project, there's far more jobs, actually, in the long term. So thinking about the social, socially useful nature of workers' labour is a good thing for unions to do, I think. It's such a good vision. There's so many good ideas there. You must be excited about starting your new position. I am, and I think it's a, it's a tribute to Trades Hall that they are taking these issues yeah. seriously and they want to um, be engaged in that in that discussion and, uh, you know, Victorian unions are showing themselves not only in the Change the Rules campaign and all of that stuff, but all these broader social movement issues. Mm. Uh, Victorian unions are, are once again leading the country on progressive politics and um, it's great to be involved in it. It doesn't sound like there's much work for you to do there, Cole, but... Uh... <laughs> no, no, not, not, not much. You'll be done in about a year, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> doing some work around uh, workers' capital and superannuation as well. So, well, look, I was going to raise super, but we're running out of time anyway. But um, yeah. just the fact that you know, super funds are also an area that should be looked at in terms of the environment, I think, how they're used. Yeah. But, um, look, we'll come back to you on that. I think we might talk to you a fair bit on this one because um, there's obviously a lot of stuff to talk about, Colin. But thanks for your time this morning. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks, thanks very much. Um, Colin Long there, who's um, just retiring, I think, as I'm not sure where he is in the in terms of moving from one to the other, but he's about to take over that job at Trades Hall, as we just talked Such about. Such an interesting job and so yeah. exciting. Yep. Because there's um, been times when the environment movement and union movement haven't been on the same page or, or working toward the same aim, so... Pushing yeah, that is a really that's well, positive. Earth workers started up, but a, yeah. I, I must admit, I, I got in at the start, but I moved out because I so frustrated by the attempts by the timber workers union in particular at that mm-hmm. time to yeah. frustrate any attempt to uh, do yep. anything about it. Yeah, but it's it's gone on and it's doing great work. Mm. Okay, Meg, thanks a lot. Thank you, Thank Kevin. You. That's all right. Next week housing. Tell people next week's housing. Listeners, tune in next week because we'll be talking about housing and I'm sure it will be uplifting. And I'm hoping to have a woman who spoke at that meeting last week, an academic who spoke very well, just tearing a government arguments apart. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah.
worth worth tuning in for. Yep. See you next week.